Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to this series four, episode five of Out with Susie Ruffle. As ever, I have to begin with a thank you to all of you that listened to last week's show. It seemed that loads of you really loved Duncan's episode. So thank you for sharing it. And maybe this is the first time you're listening to Out because you came to it because of your love of blue. So if you are new to the podcast, hello, welcome. You're very welcome here. Um, before we begin, I've been out on tour this week. I've been all over the country uh, over the last couple of months. And this weekend took me to Devon. It's Sunday now, as it always is when I'm doing the top and tail of the show. And I got back, oh, I'd say about 15 minutes ago from uh, Ivy Bridge, where I did the tour show last night. And I've met loads of people that listen to the podcast whilst I've been out on this tour. And it has been really, really special to say hello to people. Um, I want to say hello to Ali and Helen, who got married only a month ago. Congratulations, guys. They were in my show last night and they listened to the podcast. One of them listens to the podcast whilst running. So if you're running right now, keep going. Go on, you can do it. Yeah, go faster or slower or whatever makes you happy. Uh, but hello. Um, I always tell people to run slower because that's what I do. And also hello to Joe and her partner who uh, came and said hello to me last night after the show. Uh, we have a few things in our lives that are very similar and it was very nice to chat to someone that has had very similar experiences to me. So hello to both of you as well. But every single person that's come up to me and said, hi, I listened to the podcast. It means the world to me. And thank you so, so much. We've got a few tour shows left. I'm going to Reading. I'm pretty sure that one sold out, but there might be a handful of tickets left. I'm going to Portsmouth and I'm going to Banbury. I think that's it. I think four more shows and the tour's done. So um, if you want to come along, please do. I'm going to be announcing a new sort of run of shows called Susie Ruffle and Friends, where I go around the country with some of my dear friends while we will work up new material for a new show. So keep an eye out for that as well. Um, but yeah, if you want to come and see me live, please do. It's been really lovely meeting so many people that uh, know me from this rather than from stand-up and getting to make you guys laugh uh, makes me feel very special. Okay, now as ever, before we get into today's conversation, uh, which is with Jay Hume, who I love. He was absolutely brilliant. I've been trying for ages to get a trans guy to come on the podcast that wanted to chat. And obviously not everybody does want to chat. Not everyone does want to sort of speak about their life in such a public sphere. But luckily Jay did. And I really hope you enjoy this conversation with him. I found it brilliant. But before we get into that, let's have a couple of listener emails. Hi Susie, I just wanted to email you to say thank you for your fantastic podcast. I first started listening in 2020 when, thanks to the pandemic, I was finally exploring my sexuality and trying out different labels. The diversity of stories you present have really helped me to think about where I could fit within the queer community and how I interpret my constantly changing feelings. I've always been attracted to men, but only ever thought this as an aesthetic or romantic attraction, not a sexual attraction, so I didn't feel that I could claim the label by. When I was 23, I finally started using the labels bi and pan and dating some women. However, I was still confused about how I felt because my attraction to women was definitely different to my attraction to men. I would meet wonderful women who I was deeply interested in, but when, when the moment came to make a move, something just wouldn't feel right. Around the same time, my attraction to men was also changing, and I began to identify more with the label lesbian because the experiences I was having with women felt more authentic than the ones I was having with men. What I wasn't prepared for was the sense of loss I would feel as my identity transitioned and I had to leave behind the straight version of myself, which I had grown up with and lived with for my whole life. The popular narrative of coming out is that everything will suddenly make sense and you will realise you have felt this way all along, 
But I think because I became queer in my early 20s, I felt a lot of deep grief at letting go of the past version of myself and stepping into a new queer identity. I now have a wonderful girlfriend who I adore and through this relationship I've been able to explore my constantly changing feelings towards masculinity and femininity and as a result people of all genders. I currently now identify as gender fluid pansexual lesbian but I know this will continue to change as I grow and learn more about myself. I also love the label queer. I feel calmer exploring my identity again this time round and knowing that in order to grow, I will need to leave behind past versions of myself. Hearing the stories of different members of the queer community on your podcast reassures me that however I identify at any time, I'm still myself. And the most important thing is to follow what feels right. Please keep doing what you're doing and putting so much joy into the world. And that's from Lucy. Um, thank you, Lucy, for getting in touch. I think it's a really brave and honest and bold thing to say, you know, I'm not going to be static in one place forever. Things may change. I may grow. I may evolve. Because don't we all do that? I've just, I, I, I was talking on stage the other night about something I saw on, on a shirt that I had on my leavers day at school. Someone had written, never change ruffle. And I couldn't help but think, God, if I'd never changed since I was 16, I don't think I'd be very evolved. I think I'd be like, you know, I wouldn't be the version of myself that I like now. I was, you know, a child. I think we should always be changing. We should always be growing. And so you put that into words so brilliantly, Lucy. So thank you for listening to the show and thank you for sending such a gorgeous email. Okay, the next email is from, I think, Marcella. I think that's how you say it. It is Marcella. It must be Marcella. Um, hello, Marcella. Um, now, I wanted to share this email uh, this week because I think you'll be really interested in Jay's story. Jay is very involved in an LGBT inclusive church and uh, and that's a little bit what your email is about. So Marcella, today's episode I think might be right up your street. Hi Susie, I've listened to the podcast from the start and I really enjoy hearing stories that are so different yet so similar to my own. I sometimes introduce myself during the horrible icebreaker sessions at meetings by saying that I'm a lesbian, a lawyer and a Christian. And it's interesting to see which word people flinch at, depending on where I am. I've been most interested to hear the stories of other members of the LGBTQIA community with faith, and was really encouraged by the listener who emailed a few weeks ago, who said they'd started their own inclusive Christian union at university. All of us have sometimes come up against people, places, situations, and institutions, which make us hurt who we are and make us feel not good enough. Those of us with faith, any faith, may have found that in people and places of worship that should have offered us rest, hope, acceptance and healing, but didn't. My story is dull to me, but it may be interesting to you, I guess. I was brought up in an evangelical Christian family. In those days, evangelical just meant happy clappy, whereas now it can be a code word for something altogether darker and more fundamental. I was also aware from around the age of 13 or 14 that I was gay something that was seen as incompatible with Christianity and a secret that I hid. I've tried living as a straight person and as an atheist, but wasn't happy as either. I was angry with the world, with God, with everything. And not the good, energising kind of anger. This was the tired, hunched up, battled hardened kind that leaves you anxious, depressed and bitter. I knew both parts of my life, my sexuality and my faith, needed to be out in the open and that I deserved to be accepted and affirmed for who I was. And I needed to find a place to put down my life-draining anger and be around people who didn't see me as broken or wrong. I found an inclusive church in my hometown that feels like home and found the courage to come out to my family who are less condemning than I thought they would be. I hold a position of responsibility in my church and help run an LGBTQIA Christian group that met every month before the pandemic and has just started up again. A group of around 15 of us meet up to chat about our lives, our faith. We come from all different denominations and some haven't been to church in many years or are exploring faith for the first time. It's a safe space for those who have questions about theology, about God, about anything really. I'm also a vocal advocate in my local area for inclusion in churches. I believe that places of worship should not discriminate against anyone at all, not on the grounds of disability, economic power, ethnicity, gender identity, mental health or sexuality. Faith is supposed to be about hope and love and peace, but humans have made that conditional and created hoops to jump through when that was never the way it was supposed to be. I believe that God loves everyone, full stop, no ifs, no buts. I believe that God doesn't just love cisgendered, heterosexual, white, middle-aged men, no matter what they would like you to think. I believe that God loves everyone, including me. 
It's been hard for me to find a place within the Church of England where I feel safe and affirmed, but there's a growing number of inclusive churches with a growing number of wonderful people inside them. So those out there who would like to explore faith or return to it, please take heart. I can recommend the Inclusive Church Network, who not only advocate for LGBTQIA community, but also a wide range of people who have felt underrepresented in churches. There is a directory of inclusive churches on their website, which might help listeners to find somewhere safe near them. Marcella then goes on to uh, to suggest a couple of people that I that I will get in touch with um, that, that might be great people to have on the show. And then she ends the email with, thank you for giving a voice to those of us who struggle to be heard and for your boundless energy and enthusiasm. Many congratulations on your recent wedding too. I hope that you and your wife are richly blessed in your life together. Oh, and I'm welcome to use your name. Thank you. Um, thank you. I hope that we're richly blessed together too. I already feel like I am, to be quite honest. Um, so thank you for saying that. And I think this is really important. I think this is something, and I've said this before, you know, something that I don't really have a lot of understanding of. I'm not particularly a person of faith. I'm not really sure where I lie on all of that. But I do think it's really important that people feel that they can have faith. And those of you that have listened to the podcast that I did with my friend Emily Sargent, I was had a very small part in it, but about the conversion therapy it's called thinking straight if you haven't had a chance to listen to that yet i really recommend it but we went and met people from inclusive churches and they are out there and they do exist and marcella thank you so much for reaching out and sharing that with us and i think as i mentioned before this episode today with jay i think is really um affirming and hopeful about the future um about about how sexuality and faith can be something that there aren't at odds with each other that that, that work together so thank you for reaching out thank you for listening to the podcast and I really hope that you enjoy today's episode and just quickly before we get into the interview um, I would love you if I, I mean I already love you but I would really love you if you would vote for me in the National Comedy Awards I'm uh, nominated in three different areas outstanding performance by a female comedian uh, best tour and also best podcast for my comedy podcast Like Minded Friends with Tom Allen um, I would absolutely love to get onto the shortlist so if you've got five minutes this week is the final week that you can vote for me please it, it, it takes even less than five minutes to be honest that's the nationalcomedyawards.com it's really simple um, if you've got time to vote for me I would be so chuffed please please do okay let's get into the conversation Hello, listener. Well, I'm very excited for today's conversation. Jay Hume is an award-winning transgender performance poet, speaker, children's writer, and educator. I've spent all morning watching Jay's performances on YouTube, and I have absolutely loved it. I highly recommend you do a deep dive, go and check out what he is up to, watch some of the videos, definitely watch uh, the one on TED Talk as well. I found that Jay's performances, they've got this beautiful way of communicating his writing. You feel like you know him, he gives you this insight into what the world is really like for him and after spending a couple of hours watching his stuff this morning I feel like I really know him I mean unfortunately for him I don't yet but I am talking to him this morning so we can all get to know him which is brilliant because I think you're going to really like him he has worked alongside Amnesty the Centre for Literacy in Primary Education and Stop Funding Hate amongst others he's always fighting for more diversity and inclusion in literature and couldn't we all do with a bit more of that welcome to the show Jay Oh, it's brilliant to be here. Virtually. Virtually. I mean, it's very virtual. How are you doing? I'm all right. I'm all right. I mean, it's sunny but rainy at the same time. Classic British. I'm enjoying the beginning of autumn. Yes. Um, it's my favourite season. Where are you coming to us from today? I'm coming to you from Leicester. Right. Which is, you know, right in the middle of the country. Nobody ever goes here. You just pass straight through or, you know, bye. Listen, I've done some tour shows in Leicester. Don't you worry. I've been there. I've visited. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I obviously want to get on to your poetry and your writing and lots of other things and your sort of relationship with faith. You also have a piece that features in the Book of Queer Poets, which listeners might know from the episode that we did with Ruth Hunt. She curated that. And so I really want to get into all that stuff. But let's start sort of at the beginning. You're from Leicester as well. You've not... The running joke is no one can escape Leicester. Okay. So I escaped for like three, four years for university. And then I realised the difference in rent between Bristol and Leicester and moved back. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, the running joke, the running joke is that you can't escape Leicester. We... My dad went through this phase when I was a kid where he got obsessed with like family trees and he traced us back and he got all the way to like the 16, 1700s and we were still, everybody was in Leicestershire. And I was wow. like, oh my God. 
You're never going to leave. I did a gig once with another perk from Leicester in London and it was like, you never see this many people from Leicester outside of Leicester. Oh my God. (laughs) And so for people that are, we have lots of listeners overseas as well. For people that don't know, I know you said it's right smack bang in the middle of the country, but how would you sort of describe Leicester to someone that wasn't from the UK? So Leicester is actually a really weird city. So Leicester's one of the oldest cities in the UK. It was founded in about the year 60 um, by the Romans. And you wouldn't know that because the council's really bad at maintaining heritage. Um, It's been continuously occupied ever since. Um, It was a big trade area for a while in that these Roman roads have passed through it. Um, So it has this heritage of trade and industry. The Victorians put big canals through it. Again, trade and industry. Made a lot of underwear in the 1800s. Um, We still make a bit of underwear now. Um, And then in the mid 20th century, 1900s, the the council decided that they were going to be really racist, basically, and told, put a letter in like the newspapers um, in Uganda saying that everyone who was being expelled from Uganda shouldn't come to Leicester. And so when they arrived, the only city they knew of was Leicester, so they all moved here, um, which I find absolutely hilarious. I did not know that. Yeah. So Leicester is one of the... We, I, I think it's outside of London, it's the first city in the UK to be where what British people are a minority. Mm-hmm. Everybody is a minority in Leicester. Just some people are less minority than others. Um, so growing up here was really, really weird. So Diwali is huge here. We have the biggest Diwali celebrations outside of Asia. So we have this huge Diwali party, which happens in this massive parade, which happened right near where I grew up. So I'd go down. And so it's a really, really strange place to grow up in that you've got these sort of collapsing factories where like my grandma worked age like 10 making underwear and these these sort of areas that are basically like walking through India which was great as a kid and it still is amazing like although I moved away for like those years and I couldn't find a good curry elsewhere part of the reason I came back standards are high now um, and now it's sort of getting a bit gentrified it's, it's a very strange small very small because they built a ring road around the outside in sort mm-hmm. of the 70s um, which really trapped everybody in so it's a really strange small city with a lot of weird stuff going on within it okay that you've given us a lovely potted history I know, right? I appreciate that. I really appreciate that. What's less like a bit dirty? Or <laughs> the history, you know? No, I love the history. I think I started following you on Twitter because of like a thread about an inclusive church. Now, I'm not someone that's religious, but I love to see inclusivity everywhere. And so I sort of just got involved in this thread. Not that I was speaking, I was just keeping tabs on it. Yeah, tell me a little bit about the church that you're part of. So it's probably the one I did the thread on. So um, I am right. part of and now assistant church warden at St. Nicholas in Leicester, which is the oldest church in the city, seventh oldest in the country, or ninth oldest, depending on how you argue it. Obviously, I go for seventh because she's my favourite. And she's just this super old, super gay, former cathedral right in the centre of the city. Obviously, it wasn't when it was first built. It's massively in Congress. It's like tiny ancient church on the edge of this massive ring road. And because it's on the edge of the ring road, basically... In the 60s and 70s, the council demolished all of the housing around it, which was really historically important, and it angers me, really angers me. Which meant that in 1967, the last person to live in the church parish left, which meant there was nobody to go to the church. And so it became the university church for a bit, which then spiralled into it becoming the gay church. And it specifically ministered to queer people throughout the 80s and 90s, and continues to this day. And sort of the AIDS crisis really underlined that. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. So it would be somewhere that people that were living with AIDS could go and sort of get some solace yeah so Christians yeah um and this sort of faith space so we had um he died um a couple of weeks ago um we had an organist um who really encouraged that and he was there for 61 years wow. um, and he was he sort of held this community together and and put out that he was always in the gay bars and he put out this sort of whisper network of you know you can come here and people won't shout at you and you're welcome and it spiraled more and more and more um, and a few prides ago we got a pride flag at pride and pinned it to the altar and it stayed there ever since as our altar frontal obviously we've never ironed it because you know if you iron your gay flag are you really queer you know <laughs> they've got to have the creases it's important <laughs> so yeah and it's just this really really inclusive queer space and it's, it's very very special in that way and it's just hilarious because our priest is this cishet white woman who's 60 year old and actually named Karen. And she <laughs> just does her best and it, and encourages us in all of our nonsense, but also does that incredible thing that really good allies do where we do our nonsense, someone gets angry and she just stands in between us and them and goes, you carry on guys, what's your problem? That's great. It's a very special little church. 
I mean, I'm sure it's not the only one like it, but I, I think it's definitely the oldest inclusive church that's that ridiculously inclusive in that most of the congregation are queer or a lot of LGBT refugees come here. So our priest does a huge amount of work with refugee communities, ensuring that they can, well, we basically just fight the government regularly and go, please let them stay. And, and so the, the fact that it's so explicitly queer is really important. You know, people are like, why do you need to have the gay flag on the altar? And it's like, because for people like the, the refugees who've never had any sort of affirmation to have it so explicit and particularly symbols you know if English isn't your first language having mm-hmm. it so symbolically affirmed is really really important as well so there's just pride flags everywhere last pride we picked up a bear flag and hung it in the porch because we found out that one of the one of the congregation was like has been a bear since like the 80s and we were like got your present and his face when he walked in and spotted it it made it all worth it that's so nice and so what does an assistant church warden do a church warden which I'm not, thank God. Um, the full-on church warden is basically they're legally responsible for the church building, all of its belongings. They're allowed to arrest people who interfere in a divine service on a Sunday. Oh, wow. Um, they, they don't. They are sort of the premier non-priest person in that they're supposed to, you know, they, they run the rotors, they organise stuff. They're the person that people come and talk to if they don't want to talk to a priest, that kind of thing. Um, so the assistant church warden might, uh, can vary some people. The assistant ward, church warden is pastorally responsible. So they do sort of the talking to people thing and check that everyone's all right. And if there's a concern, they tell the priest. I am more responsible for the building. So I have a special responsibility for the fabric, which basically means the building. So mostly I try and stop the roof caving in and uh, and talk to all of church the people. Church roofs. I mean, there's a real issue with church roofs. It feels like people are consistently raising for a church roof, no matter where you go. It's because a church roof lasts about 70 years. Right, okay. And most churches... Uh, had them done at a certain point when the Church of England had a lot of money so now they're all sort of hitting their 70 years over the past sort of 10 years so St Nick's is like ours was put in in the 50s so it's time but we run on a budget of £17,000 a year to keep a a church building that's over a thousand year olds up and running plus all of the costs of ministry we don't pay for our priest we share her with other people Uh, we, we have a third of Karen Right, okay. We do what we can in a tiny budget and stick things back together with superglue. Um, there's a big hole in the tower at the moment that you can see sunlight through, and I'm just trying not to think about it, to be honest with you. How much of your life is spent at church? A lot. Um, my priest turned to me recently and was like, do you think your church life balance needs recalibrating? And I was like, what does that mean, Karen? And she was like, you've been here, like, a lot. And I'm like, just like it here. I'm not stressed. I'll, I'll take my laptop in and do emails. It's just special. And I don't know, I get more work done there. I feel like I'm accountable. God's looking over my shoulder like, get off of Twitter. <laughs> and so did you grow up in a religious home? Lol, no. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, my family are not fans of the whole Jesus thing. So, no, I was gr- brought up in a house that was... So my parents were like hippies okay. of, of the sort of 80s genre. Mm-hmm. Hippie bikers. Like, they were originally really bikery, but as they grew older, they grew more hippie Okay. Which was a weird transition. Either way, they were very countercultural, you know. They, they were like, we don't like religion because it's the mainstream thing. And so they weren't just, like, against it. They were, like, really anti-religion. But they were also really anti-capitalism, which meant that we just didn't really do Christmas. Like, we'd, we'd do it to the point that my grandparents wouldn't be mad about it. But we didn't do Christmas. Um, and so last year was, like, my first Christmas. And I tur- we were walking around a park, and I turned to my priest, and I was like, is Christmas Day the 24th or the 25th? And she was like, Jay. I, was like, I just don't know. I don't know. I have no idea. Um, so no, we grew up. I grew up very, very far from religion. The closest that I always joke, the closest we got to God when I was a kid was my uncle had blagged a uh, a job working as a handyman at a convent. Okay, don't ask me how. And he stole a load of kitchen chairs and other various things from nuns. And so our kitchen chairs were like stolen from nuns. So what kind of child were you in this very non-religious household when I was very little? I was very much your standard bookworm. Mm-hmm. So my parents went to the pub like every night and I'd just sit in the corner with a book and the people at the pub knew that they couldn't afford to buy me books as quickly as I read them. So they would just come in with like carrier bags full of books that were definitely inappropriate for children like Stephen King and stuff. And I would just sit oh, in the corner wow. and read these like free books. Um, so I was this super little bookworm thing. And then oddly enough, around puberty, I turned really angry and angsty and 
I describe it as a bit of an asshole. got into a fair amount of trouble, got into a lot of fights. I wonder why I was so mad and it changed so suddenly around puberty. Who could possibly have guessed? Big trans vibes. So, yeah, I sort of grew up with this sort of duality of I just want to read books and also I just want to fight everything and I'm really angry and I don't know why. And so did you know, you know, my experiences as a queer woman, a queer cis woman, I should say, and I, I knew relatively quickly that I was like noticing other girls and, and sort of attracted to people. But I don't know what that would be like f- for a trans person. Were you aware of what that feeling was? It's really difficult because I look back and I obviously knew. Right. But I didn't know trans existed. And unlike, you know, queer identity, I always knew that I, was, I wasn't straight. And that's been great because being bi means that I managed to... <laughs> it was an easy thing as I transitioned in that it, it remained... The language remained the same, which was very mm. easy for me. I always knew that I wasn't straight, but that's something that's really easy to to understand compared to gender when you don't understand... Because there's a possibility there. You can always, you can always date someone, right? Mm-hmm. And the genders may be different, but the dating is a thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas trans, it's an impossibility, you know, if you don't know that trans people exist, if you don't know that transition is possible, what you've got inside you is an impossibility. And so you don't know, if you don't know that trans people exist, you can't know that you're trans because the world says these are the two things. And so I knew I wanted to be a boy, but I had no idea that that was a thing that could happen. Mm-hmm. So it was very, very weird. It was very, very weird. Um, I, so I, I knew I was trans, but I had no idea that I was trans simultaneously until I was about 15, 16, 17, someone in there. Um, and I came mm. across a webcomic. I don't do comics. I won't lie to you. I am too easily distracted for comics. But I came across a webcomic that was about a trans guy. And I was like, I just read it under the covers over the period of like three weeks repeatedly being like, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, it's me. And then coming to terms with that and coming out, because of course, not only was there the fact that trans people weren't really represented, um, and if they were, they were they were a footnote, but if they were represented, it was your Jeremy Kyle. Um, mm-hmm. It was, here are these freaks. What sort of year would have this been? Oh, so I came out about a year, two years before Caitlyn Jenner came out. So it was the early 2010s. Okay. So probably 2013, 2014. So it was just before the big conversations. It was just before them. And in some ways, I was very, very lucky in that I came out before the big conversations, which means that I always say I skidded in to the NHS waiting lists just before they boomed because everyone went, oh my God, trans is a thing. And I finally have this language. And now I can, and you see this uptick when people suddenly realise that that who they are is a thing and it exists and and they can live, honestly. Um, And so I skidded in. So the waitlist was only only nine months at that point for the gender clinic that I went to and that was the shortest one in the country now the wait lists are over five years and that's just for your that's not for surgery that's like for your first that's for a chat. conversation yeah that's that's for someone to go oh hi how are you and you're like queer I'm trans <laughs> yeah and then yeah so I skidded in just just by the skin of my teeth but it did mean that so I was lucky in that sense but I was also unlucky in that I was figuring it out in this world that hadn't got that language yet mm-hmm. i mean the language existed forever but not in a public sphere so it was it was very very strange but so of course the trans women that you got were it was your jeremy kyle it was your people shouting at each other on television and mm-hmm. i was sitting here like you know i'm not i'm not a freak i'm not a creep i'm not some sort of pervert because that's all you get shown and of course trans mm. women always get it worse because of the the whole fragile masculinity thing in that uh it's why trans women always get it worse um homophobia and transphobia and sexism are all the same thing and I will argue this until the day I die and it's a fear of the destruction of masculinity in a patriarchal society it's why trans women and gay men are focused on and it's because it's the idea that someone would give up the masculine power and the stereotypical masculinity and trans men are belittled rather than shouted at generally obviously because we are just poor, misguided women. And also there's this kind of like, oh yeah, it's kind of ballsy to go for that patriarchal power. You know, good on you, almost. Whereas the mm. trans women are these are these subversive freaks, almost. Um, so it's a really interesting, it's an interesting dynamic. It's, what, it's why um, butch lesbians are often, uh, get it worse and are, are more depicted than um, more femme lesbians because of that, because of that fear and, and that patriarchal sexist dynamic. It's why you cannot be a feminist and transphobic because transphobia is sexism. It's just dressed up in different clothes. 
Would you tell us a little bit, because I watched, I think it was for the Leeds LGBT Literature Festival, you spoke about your book, is it called Here Be Monsters? Oh yeah, yeah, my, my kid's book. Yeah, you spoke about it, you spoke about the dragons seeing someone like themselves. Could you sort of give us a little, I don't want to do it because I know that I won't do as good a version of you, but it was. I thought it was such a nice allegory for being trans or for being different that I, I would, yeah, I would just love you to share that if you don't mind. Yeah, so I did. I did a picture book called Here Be Monsters, and it's it's just um, it's a mini epic poem. So it's you know it's like it's a full story in poetry, but it's just not as long as like the Iliad because it's a mm-hmm. kids' book. It's only a couple of pages, and basically I wrote it to be about trans people, but it is it is about you know it is about difference and queer identity, but also representation um, and the importance of representation more generally. But obviously the dragon's trans, because so am I. And uh, basically um, the story goes that there's uh, there's a dragon egg, only you don't find out that it's a dragon until right at the end. And this egg's washed out to sea and it hatches and this creature bursts out of it and is in the ocean um, and doesn't know who she is or why she's there and she travels around and there's no other creatures like her and she tries to be a whale and she's not a whale and she's very sad and the humans chase after her because she's different and scary and she ends up living in an island and singing sad songs um, about how sad she is and her dragon mum hears these sad songs and swoops down and is like I am here this is who you are the ocean's great but you're not supposed to live there. Come and join me in the sky. Um, and the dragon, uh, so she lifts up um, and, and joins her mother in the sky and, and she sees herself. And so she saw her mother and saw herself the same. She saw who she was born to be, free from fear and pain. It said, and then there's a bit about her like flying and then there's a bit that goes, um, it said that as she lifted up and left the sea for good, she sang a song that shook the skies and caused the land to flood. The words are unrecorded, perhaps, for there were none. For sometimes words cannot express joy when joy has won. And that is big trans energy, I think. It's such a, I don't know, it just sounded like such a beautiful story about it being okay to be different, that it should be celebrated, and that lots of people are, and that that's okay. And the joy of finding yourself, you know, so many books about queer identity are like, here's the sad stuff. Mm, totally. And it's like, no, knowing who you are is, is joy. Everyone talks about, you know, trans dysphoria and we never talk about trans euphoria. Totally. It's that, oh my God, everyone feels this way all of the time. This is great moment. Because I saw in one sort of chat that you were doing that you were saying that you, when talking about this book, you were saying that you hadn't seen another trans person after you'd begun your sort of your your journey of transitioning it wasn't like you had a trans group of mates or or anything like that like that must have been first of all really hard were you was it in a time of like message boards on the internet were you sort of seeking out people like you anywhere else so it was really really weird i mean since then large numbers of the friend group i was with have come out of some form of queer right because you always we cluster without knowing. Yeah, we gravitate, we gravitate. We, we know, even when we don't know. Um, I, I've got a friend who wrote a poem about this, and there's a line that goes, my friends or something who are homogeneously queer without group consultation. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just like, yeah, <laughs> what a line. Yeah, so it was very, very strange. So I didn't meet another trans person knowingly until I'd been out for a few years because it was that that beginning time of those conversations so you know you saw them occasionally online floating by and it's like ah one of me Um, and that's that's all you get Um, and particularly with with trans people all queer people have the problem of there aren't that many uh, queer elders anymore you know Mm -hmm. because of the AIDS epidemic and hate crimes and suicide rates and all just the misery Uh, but with trans people you have the added issue that if there are trans elders most of them are stealth and so they they aren't out as trans because of the time mm-hmm. in which they lived. Um, and so there is this sort of death of of trans elders. And so you grow up without these role models. And so one of my big things, people are like, why do you always put that you're trans on your books and your kids' books and books have nothing to do with being trans? And it's about being able to go, you know, I'm not a trans elder, you know, I'm 24. But in 40 years, someone's going to be like, there was me. I was there and it's mm. important. And we existed and we still exist because continuity is really important. I think continuity is what I love about churches as well. I wrote a piece once about, you know, how churches are one of the few 
things with continuity in this, particularly in England. You know, we have these ancient churches where the same things happened using basically the same form of language for a mm-hmm. thousand years in the same place in the same building. And it's continuity. And we live in a world without continuity. You know, how many governments have we had? You know, yeah. we get a new phone every year. People sort of my age, we grew up with VHS and DVD and streaming. You know, I remember getting cassette tapes for my birthday yeah. and Christmas. And then, you know, now we've gone all the way through CDs and out the other side, we could play in the street and now we really can't. And then this huge just shift, the whole world changed. I remember dial up internet and then, Mm. you know, I'm talking to you on ridiculously fast internet and I can also use the phone at the same time if I wanted to. Only there isn't a phone because we don't have home phones anymore and the entire world's flipped. Yeah. And with queer people, there's a lack of continuity and identity as well. You know, there isn't that. We will do the same things as our family have done for 400 generations because people didn't talk about it and there isn't that that lineage and I think that that's really important and that's why representation is so important because if you can see yourself you can be yourself I was in a meeting like yesterday with like the diocese because that's the kind of life I live now in church world where there was some statistics that were saying that where there are female priests there are more women coming forward saying that they want to be ordained priest because they see themselves Um, and it's the same with kids books there is loads of statistics saying that when children from ethnic minorities finally see themselves in books which the statistics are horrendous as of it's a couple of years ago now in like 2017 2018 one percent of children's books had a main character of color one percent which is where the like read the one percent thing came from i believe we're on two percent now so it has doubled but when it's one percent doubling means very little yeah but where kids are able to read books with characters that look like them they have better outcomes their reading scores are higher their reading ages are higher their literacy rates are better um, they go on to get get better grades in every subject uh, because literacy is so important and so it's, it's about that representation it affects all areas of your life even the ones you're not thinking of you know like what job you go into for example for the for the you know women in the clergy and then you've got and that applies to all people you know when you see yourself as a banker you can be a banker or i wouldn't recommend that but you know if you wanted to <laughs> and in everything else you become better when you know that you can be role models are important basically of course yeah of course and so that must have been really isolating not having trans role models so so you were saying sort of 16 17 18 at the time yeah that must have been obviously i can only sort of liken it to my experience but i sort of i know that i've said this before on the podcast but i I remember thinking i know there's quite a lot of gay men I guess there's maybe like 30 of us lesbians. Like, I thought there was, like, I was like, 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 there's a handful of us. Like, I'll find them. I'll find them. Like, I knew they were there out there. I didn't know anyone that was a gay woman. But I knew that they existed. But that must have been a bit, I mean, even fewer trans people and certainly trans guys. Because it feels in the media, you know, we often hear a lot from, which is obviously excellent. But, you know, we hear... Like, you know, even on this podcast, I've reached out to lots of trans guys that I'd love. But you, you're the first trans guy that I've had on the show. Yay. He's fist bumping the air. Yeah, He's punching am. the air, not bumping. But because there are sort of, it seems to be there are more trans women who speak in a more public sphere or are more happy to speak or, you know, or have put their voice out there in a way where I've been able to get in touch with them, I guess. So I guess as a trans guy as well, they were, yeah, even more so, please, you speak. There's, there's just a very interesting dynamic there in the... Um it's been noted that um, trans women are are more likely to come out at older ages than trans men um, because right. of that institutional sexism that I talked about previously mm-hmm. um, and, and this sort of fear. Um, whereas trans men, it's a lot easier and a lot more socially accepted to be more masculine, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Girls sure. can wear trousers and all of that. Yep. So trans women sort of basically have it beaten out of them. Um, Mm. either literally or metaphorically and so they come out later in life Um, whereas trans guys often you could do a stint as a butch lesbian for a little bit I did like six months and I was like "Mm, no it's not right that's not me it's great but not me so trans guys come out and so they're often younger and so um, when it comes to the public sphere that their voices aren't taken as seriously because you know you're young or whatever Um, so that's part of the dynamic that's so interesting thank you for educating me on that that's really interesting yeah, uh, and, and of course, um, transphobes take that to be like, oh, young women and girls are being mind-changed at young ages. That's why there's so many young of them. And I'm like, no, it's because of sexism, which you should know. Um, but yeah. yes, so it's it's just a really interesting dynamic. But that's why when you when you see trans men, often they are, they are younger because mm. 
me and a trans woman of say 45 you know or more someone double my age would be in the same generation of trans people in that we came out at the same time and so you get this really interesting interesting shift there and a very interesting dynamic which affects whose voices you hear i mean i know that you said that you um there was a nine month waiting list to go to the clinic to have the first sort of chat at that point were you out in any capacity so so yeah i came out as everybody does to different groups at different times but yeah. i was basically fully out and living as a guy by the time that 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 meeting took place um so right. I, I came out to my my friend group at high school who were great and they it was very weird i was the first ever trans kid that the school had dealt with they didn't know what to do um, my high school was dodgy as it was so um wow that's really young so you were still at school yeah i was i was in sixth form but i was still at school and there was this huge drama because they didn't know what to do about it. And there was one like Christian teacher who was against it uh, because of course she was. And the high school was really dodgy. Um, it was the worst school in the county. It was in special measures. It closed down the year I left. Um, it was a whole thing. Uh, it was next to a sewage plant. So it always smelled of weed and human poo. It was really great. And uh, because it was so dodgy a few years before, and I, I don't know how this was allowed, but a few years before, they'd taken all the doors off the toilets because people were just doing drugs and having sex in them, which was great for a trans person. But there were a few toilets in the new build sixth form centre block. So people just had to have a wee in front of each other? You'd all be in your own cubicle, but yeah, if someone walked, sure, sure. walked in front. Yeah. They, they, weren't like, they weren't like facing each other. It was like a row of no, doors no, no. Like a corridor. <laughs> I wasn't um, imagining that as like, that sounds more like a kink. Well, sometimes you get like the ones that like face each other, but no, we did. We were very lucky in that they were they were sort of single row cubicles. But yeah, it was really grim. So I just didn't use the toilet until we got to sixth form because the new build sixth form centre that had doors on the toilets, which is really exciting. But the school didn't know what to do about it because you know I was the first ever trans kid, and legally they were supposed to let me use the boys' toilet, but they were like, "You're gonna get murdered," and I was like, "I know," <laughs> but I'm not using the girls' toilet, and they were like, "Right," and so they were like, "Look." There was, there was like a drama studio at the back that they rented out and they had like a couple of individual toilets in the changing rooms. And they were like, do you want your own special toilet? And I was like, yes. So I had the only like clean toilet in the school. I won't lie to you. It was, <laughs> it was kind of, it was the best violation of the Equality Act I've ever experienced. Um, <laughs> it was so, but it was, it, was, it was very, very strange. So I went to university and I went to university stealth for a bit. So I was very lucky in that I was short and I was fairly ballsy. When you say stealth, do you mean that you were passing as a boy and or, or just not coming out as male or female or I was just extremely androgynous and I changed my name at that right. point legally so I was on okay. all the systems under the right name so it it created this sort of dynamic where the people in my flat knew uh, because mm-hmm. I, I told them I was like look I'm living with you guys you're gonna find out so I might as well tell you um, but to everyone else I was just this strange little androgynous kid um, and then people like worked it out but it, it, I never made like a thing I never came out to people it was just like a thing you either knew or you turned to put one of my gigs and found out because you were performing poetry at that point yeah so I started performing when I was I started performing in 2013 2014 was my first paid gig I got five pound a slice of cake and <laughs> I've been performing ever since. Don't try and pay me that now, okay? I'm better than that these days. See, I was performing. I deliberately chose my university because I knew that it wasn't a very good university, which meant I'd be able to just focus on my poetry career and still get a degree. Oh, wow. (laughs) So I attended like half the lectures I was supposed to. There's one module where I turned up to one lecture and went, this is rubbish and just didn't turn up ever again. Passed, got 2-1. Don't do this, guys. (laughs) So yeah, like my lecturers knew and all of that because I'd have to take time off to go to like... Uh, the gender clinic of course and because that was in Nottingham I'd have to take the full day to like get the train up there for like god knows when in the morning and then and then get the train back which became very expensive but you know what can you do so yeah I I was kind of out but not you know I it it wasn't a big deal to me and I was Mm. making it not a big deal so other people didn't make it a big deal and by that point we'd had the whole Caitlyn Jenner thing and oh aren't trans people so brave thing and we were just beginning the let's be really transphobic thing that sort of kicked in sort of year two of uni right so it was in the sweet spot when I first started uni of people knew trans people existed and they weren't super awful about it and then by second year I'd already got my friends so so now you're sort of this you're, you're writing you're working in sort of diversity and inclusion within literature does it feel like your voice is being heard does it feel like as a trans guy there's sort of room for you yes and no so it's really interesting dynamic so publishing is 
publishing could do better as an industry mm-hmm. in most corners of diversity. Yeah. Um, not just trans issues. And it's really, really interesting because publishing, a lot of people who go into publishing are really left wing. I'm really here for diversity, but the structures of power are not. And so you get this really frustrating dynamic where I'll go to, I'll be asked to talk at an event or give advice or something, and I will, and it will be received really well. And I know that the people there will have taken that on board. And then the publishing company itself does something super transphobic or ignores something super transphobic or, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm just going to say it. Who cares about my career anymore? Publishing in the UK does not care about transphobia. It doesn't care. Mm. It's the acceptable face of bigotry in the UK. There are numerous books published by transphobes with transphobic agendas um, that if they talked about gay people in that way or any other minority group in that way would not be published. Mm -hmm. There are authors who are outright transphobic, who are held up as, as paragons in their field. Um, who are given accolades, who complain that they're being cancelled while being given important positions within the industry, mm-hmm. ambassadors for, um, you know, like World Book Day or National Poetry Day or, you know, whatever it is, who are given very coveted roles and who are given some of the best tools in publishing. Because the fact is, and people hate to talk about it, but in publishing, there is one, it's statistics, people have actually done the mass, there is one dictator of success in publishing and it's not the quality of the book it is not the name of the author it is marketing the marketing mm-hmm. budget is the one thing that correlates with the amount of things that are, copies that are sold it's the only thing that correlates with the amount of copies that are sold wow the bigger your marketing budget the more copies you will sell and transphobic authors are given large marketing budgets and then they'll commission a trans person and they'll give you a small marketing budget and that's how it is i, I once did a sensitivity read for a book and then sorry what's a sensitivity read it's where I read it and go, mm, this isn't quite how trans people be. And maybe you don't want to say oh, this. Okay. Um, make sure that the, if, if someone's written a trans character, basically making sure that it's as accurate as possible. Half the time they ignore me and they just want a tick box. Some of the time the sure. author's really great about it. Um, and I had one who completely changed the plot and the trajectory of a character. And it was, it was a really, really nice experience working with that author. And they asked me if I'd write an introduction. And I wrote one that was like, because the book dealt with a lot of transphobia and queerphobia. So I was like, you know, here's what's happening and here's a warning, you know, our rights can be destroyed. And it went through the editorial process and it started with someone who was, who'd been, I think, at an event that I talked at and it was like very well received. And it slowly climbed up the ladder of publishing and it hit the top or near the top. And someone just redacted everything I said about trans stuff and was like, can we publish this? And everybody lower on the chain was really mad but couldn't do anything about it. And I was like, if you publish it like that, I don't want my name attached to it. And there was a huge fight. What happened in the end? Oh, I can't tell you because then you'll guess what book it is and they might get in trouble. Oh, okay. (laughs) It's like that, yeah. Publishing's like that. There are authors that I could name and shame. I've had transphobic authors phone my publishers and tell them not to publish me because I'm trans. I'm writing for kids. I've had my publishers get emails from transphobic authors who are still being published trying to end my career because I'm trans and I write for kids and they don't want me to like trans their children and I'm like that's not how it works I'm showing the children the spectrum of opportunity and ensuring that they're not sad and angry like I was yeah absolutely I cannot trans a kid any more than you can cis a kid (laughs) yeah it's really unsurprising and disappointing it's like disappointed but not surprised yeah is my life both in publishing yeah in the church um, in the world in general, disappointed. I should get it like tattooed on my forehead and just sort of like lift my fringe every time someone says something to me, disappointed, but not surprised. But do you have a good relationship with your publishers? Because you are sort of writing a lot, it seems. So I've got a fair few publishers and I have a good relationship with with basically all of them. Yeah, so I've recently been published by a Christian publisher, which has been a wow. fun ride. So I did a book of uh, queer Christian poetry. Uh, it came out like last week. So I basically shopped it to any Christian publisher that wasn't super, super like conservative. Yeah. And one of them was like, yeah, we'll give it a go. Um, And I can feel that they're like super hyped to have like a trans, um, which is really cute. Um, And I was like, you know, we're going to get flack for this. And they were like, yeah, it's fine. And that's all you want from a publisher, you know. Yeah. Um, You know, we're going to get flack for this. And I'm going, yeah, it's fine. Um, And then the kids publishers, they've all been really great, um, including the ones who've had like transphobes ring them up um, and email them and stuff. Um, it just ironically makes them happier to publish me. That's great. So it's been a really, really good relationship, but I work with small presses for the, for that reason, because the people in the small presses are the people who 
like the lower levels of the big name publishers are mm-hmm. great um and then when you escalate up and also you know with bigger publishers yes you do have that marketing budget but also you have people in there going nope and and i know trans authors who work with big publishers and i don't know how they do it i i think they're i don't say oh you're so brave but it would frustrate me no end i don't think i have the i don't think i have the patience for it and and honestly it's very ballsy of them to walk into the lion's den and go publish my book yeah and get it done but i i couldn't do it i couldn't do it so yeah i tend to work with um smaller independent presses uh, particularly in kids books because they'll take stuff that the bigger publishers won't and if people want to find out more about you or buy one of your books what is the best place your website yeah so there's a list of all my books on my website and currently one of them is available for my shop um i give the publishers a couple of months to sell it through normal channels before i then sell my own copies through my shop um, mm-hmm. i mean they're, they're the same copies as the publishers got i just buy them at an author discount and sell them on my on my website but yes so you can find them all on my website um and i've got a couple of church climbing stories on my website not enough i need to upload like 50 more um and they're all just stories of how i climbed up a ladder and should have died but didn't and saw this pretty thing <laughs> and so the final question i ask absolutely everyone that comes on the podcast is basically what would you tell your 15 year old self or it can be cannot be you it can be someone that's listening that's maybe having similar feelings to that person that you were in that difficult school working out who they were or or, you know you when you were at university and you were you know living stealth or working out how to come out if you could give them a bit of advice or pop your arm around their shoulder what would you say I think that's a really interesting question because recently I have been having like a my life is not how I expected it to go moment. So I was at this book launch, you know, and it was real fancy and I'm not I'm not from a real fancy place. And I was there and I was like, if I had walked in on like fifteen year old Jay and gone, in almost ten years time, you will be ten books into a publishing career, really into Jesus, launching a book at a fancy church. Also, you're a guy now. I'd have been like that's just bollocks what are you talking about like I couldn't have comprehended it and so it's it's been a really weird sort of couple of weeks for me well well, like week so far of me being like wow my life has changed I think that's what I would say like change is possible you're not stuck with who you are and who you think you are right now you can always grow into who you are it's never too late to grow into who you are because a lot of trans people even really young ones have had this idea drilled into them now that sort of trans stuff is online a lot it's like it's too late it's too late for you to transition it's never too late for you to be yourself fully and completely and I think the big message I would give is that there is grim stuff and I'm not going to deny that but there is boundless joy here if you want it and there are lots of people who will help you get there that is the perfect way to end the podcast thank you so much for your time Jay it's been a pleasure Well, I really enjoyed that chat. I think he's absolutely brilliant and so many interesting things to say. And and please look up his his books and his children books and his poetry. I think I I read loads of it whilst I was uh, researching him and I really enjoyed it. So I think that you might as well. Um, But that's all from this week. Thank you so, so much for listening. Please get in touch if you would like to. The email is hello at outwithsusieruffle.com and I will chat to you next week. Oh,